are listening to the Leaders Performance Podcast and you're very welcome to join us for another episode. My name is David Cushnan, Head of Content here at Leaders. With me, as always, John Porch, Editor, Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How are you doing? Very well. Very busy. Lots going on down at the Institute. I'm sure you'll agree. As always. As always. And uh, John, you disappeared from your desk again uh, last week when the NBA was in town. Uh, You headed down to the O2 Arena. What were you doing? Well, I was down at the O2 Arena, David, to speak to Mubarak Malik, who is the Director of Performance at the New York Knicks. They were in London for the Global Game, you may recall. Indeed, I do. Uh, What was on the agenda? Well, he talked about his career and his last few years working for the Knicks. He talked about building a resilient NBA player, that they can't really rely on one area or discipline, that there has to be a lot of different disciplines knitted together. And it's really a question of building good habits in the college players who come onto their roster. Sounds like a fascinating chit-chat. Anything else you talked about? Well, he also runs me through his career at Exos and at the MLB's Pittsburgh Pirates. So he's not just worked in basketball, he's actually got a wide-ranging career. And it's a real clinic, David, in high performance, but... Barr, as he's better known, has never lost his beginner's mind, as he put it to me. Good stuff. We'll get into the conversation shortly. Quick reminder to you, listener, that we have our next uh, Leaders Performance Summit, uh, the 2nd of March at UFC's uh, fantastic new high-performance facility in Las Vegas. Uh, And you can be with us. Check out the website for more details. All right, John, all set for another of your conversations? It's a cracker. Let's get on with it. Well, welcome to London, first of all, and welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is uh, my second year. We were here 2014. It was my first full year, and um, I really didn't get a chance to go outside of the hotel because I was too busy just trying to, you know, work on my area of expertise at the time. And um, this trip around, I actually got outside, got some sun, got to see the London Eye, the Tower Bridge, and some other um, attractions here. So. I appreciate you guys welcoming us here because for me, this is my second time around and it's been a better experience. And you've managed to do the real tourist trailer. Yeah, we did. We did that too. So um, that was that was very, very insightful and I, I appreciate that. And of course, we're about a stone's throw from the court you're going to be playing on tonight here yeah, at the you O2. See it. <laughs> yeah, um, right here. Have you checked it out? What are, what are, you, what are your thoughts on it's, it's huge. I mean, it, um, it has, I didn't realize, you know, there's a lot of history too. Like I was walking through the hallways and I saw like, you know, Sade, which is a favorite artist of mine, one of my favorite artists of mine. She's a singer. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, Beyonce, Britney yeah. Spears, um, I think it was David Bowie. Some other people were just um, had shirts signed, and I didn't realize that the O2 just hosted all these different, you know, incredible people there. And I know that it seated as many as the seats as well. So it seemed like it could be a good venue, and um, it should be an electrifying game because it's like about fifty thousand seats in there. So Absolutely. I think it's a sold out game because it's the, the only only global game. So I think. Uh, it should be a good good environment tonight. Yeah, there certainly isn't a spare ticket in town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this, I mean, like I said, it's huge. I mean, it's it's nice. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, he did a good job with setting it up to, to host, you know, both us and also the Wizard. And, of course, we're very excited about the game, but we're here to talk about you and your yeah. role, specifically at the Knicks today. Uh, you've been at the Knicks now for more than five years, and the last three and a half, I understand, you've been Director of Performance. Correct. What does the role of director of performance look like in the NBA, and how has that evolved over those past few years? Um, you know, I think it's uh, it's you know, it's evolved from just straight up strength and conditioning, spending all of your time in the weight room. You know, through trade, obviously that's why I study kinesiology, biomechanics, and movement science. But in the NBA, you know, we're getting more into the athlete monitoring systems, the performance, 
and also, you know, being able to collaborate amongst the other disciplines that you're working with day to day. So my role as a head of performance, you know, you have to work with your player development coaches. You have to work with uh, your scouts, your mental skills, performance coaches, your psychologists, your dietitians, your athletic trainers and your physical therapists, and also your sports science consultant if you have one. So it's an integrated position that is derived pretty much off of building a robust athlete and using all of your tools within arm's length to build a resilient NBA basketball player because they're younger and you can't just rely on these weight room biomechanics. You know, that's the set, that's the foundation. But you have to take in all these other factors, external factors and internal factors that will allow this athlete to grow and develop and become a professional, successful player in this league. So that's what the role has pretty much transitioned to. So you have to have the background of program design, you know, energy system expertise. You have to know the game. Um, you have to know anatomy and physiology, you know, how external forces affect the, the body, kinetics and kinematics, but also be able to take all these other different inputs, uh, calibrate that day to day so that it fits within a bigger picture to build the athlete that you want. And that's what you have to be able to be prepared for and be able to uh, extrapolate and articulate here in the NBA, especially in my role with the Knicks. And we're going to try and get into some of that this afternoon, yeah, yeah. of course. And it sounds to me as if you really are working at a frontier here. Yeah, um, you know, and it, it's yeah, you, you know, there isn't like um, you know, you don't there isn't like a, a pathway there. You know, you have to figure out you know what, what uh, what philosophies you know what does the president want the team to be able to look like from a physical standpoint. You know, what is the coaching philosophy within this team? Um, you know, what is the 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 systems and the, the different types of technology that the, the ownership team is willing to put into the organization to make sure that we stay ahead of the curve. Um, so you're kind of just trailblazing your own pathway because um, you have all these resources that you could dive into, um, which takes a lot of time as far as researching which tool is best for every variable, whether it's you know GPS, indoor tracking, if it's heart rate variability, you know if it's recovery strategies, if it's compression types, if it's sleep gadgets, how do you, you know, what's different micronutrients timing of that micronutrient to figure out you know if a person is more receptive to this type of fiber that type of fat um blood paneling is all these different things in addition to like cameras that the coaches use and our data analysts and video guys use so how do you take all that information and build that into the strength and conditioning to make sure that you can manage that and i think yeah you know it's, you don't go to school um thinking about all the different ways that a strength coach has to be a part of a team and all the different ways that you have to uh, collaborate with these individuals to to build up a philosophy of winning whatever that philosophy means for that organization so yeah it's a new frontier and more than anything else um, in our profession now you have to be more well-versed in all these areas and a lot of that begins with a beginner's mind um, I don't know as much of these basketball coaches as far as the tactical stuff um, but technical technicalities as far as how the body should move shin angles how they should cut I can speak that, you know, that's how we make connections with our, you know, our cycle um, analysts and our, you know, our mental skills professionals. At the end of the day, it's just trying to get that 1% out of them mentally. And some of that has to do with just sleep, sleep better. And our diet change is, is nutrient timing. And then, you know, within our meetings from the front office is just, are they getting better? Yes or no. So yeah, you just have to be well-versed in all these different buckets so that you can provide the philosophy and also the type of team that can win games with more agile, more explosive, faster athletes this, this day and age. And it's very much player-centric, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It's player-centric. Um, the, the NBA is a player's league. 
and um, they have everything at their disposal, and they're younger. You know, they're 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 very younger um, today than they were. You know, last year, and uh, you get it's an opportunity to teach them. You know, habits that um, you know they don't get taught at this pace. You know, coming out of college, so you focus on the micro because you have to be able to establish good habits first, as opposed to waiting till they get three years in the league. And you're trying to teach them how to eat a certain way, train a certain way, go to bed a certain way recover a certain way it's better to do it this way now with younger athletes who come straight out of college than it is with some of your older athletes who maybe three years in and you're trying to establish that culture as soon as you get them in the building as soon as you get them in the building there's a there's a meeting that takes place you know i've been here for a while so i kind of have a you know a pulse of you know what the message is from the front office so you know we start early in the off season may all the way through september with getting groups of players together to drive that message and that culture home that culture home that hey look we work here and this is how we work this is what we expect from you this is what we'll measure this is the feedback we'll give you and it's just constant constant just getting one percent better every day and it sounds cliche but that's what we hang our hat on it's just okay we have all the information we've created the relationships with these guys personally and then how can we drive all this information into them to get that much better day in and day out and that's what we that's what we search for I've had the pleasure of speaking to directors of performance yeah. in other fields, in other mm -hmm. sport. And a lot of them have actually worked across a couple of different sports. Yeah. And, and you are no different, of course. You used to be in Major League Baseball yeah. with the Pittsburgh Pirates. You had an SNC role there? Yeah, I worked, um, and I, you know, I always tell people, you know, you, it's better to come into a certain sport with the experience of working across a, a couple of different disciplinaries. And I worked in baseball, and I also worked in the military. Um, and I, both of those roles were SNC focused, um, with the military role being a lot more education based, which uh, taught me a ton. And I'll get get into that in a second. But in baseball, you know, I, I think the, the 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 benefits of being in baseball first. As I started my career in minor league baseball, it's still professional baseball, um, and they still invest tons of money into these draft picks. It's just that they start off at a lower level. But that is a that's beautiful because these athletes are drafted and they they're going through different stages of performance at every level that's fine-tuning them to get ultimately to the big leagues so by the time they get to the big leagues these guys are 25 26 years old which is the prime state of an athlete and they are already been in three different minor league levels so knowing what pitches to look at how they should hit different situations situational hitting situational pitching most of the, the staff at these minor league levels have 10 plus years of major league experience so they had successful careers so they dive right into the the professionalism of being a pro baseball player the nuances of the game and also how to travel as a pro and they're 21 22 years old and that educational component of minor league baseball is so critical because as you go up to and you get to triple a you don't have the, the room for error anymore the bass the, the the balls are coming off faster off the bat the infielders are quicker to react to the to the ball. The pitchers know your weaknesses. The outfielders are faster, can close out on a, on a ball a lot more quicker than you can at you know lower A. So that taught me, um, you know, okay, how do you tap into the mind of a, a professional baseball player? I was 23 years old, and a lot of guys were older than me at that time. So I really got an opportunity to program for baseball. You know, anti rotation. You know, general strength, general prep. Um, stability, you know, what, what does pitchers need, what does hitters need, what's a, what makes a great catcher, uh, what are some of the, uh, the metrics that these infield and hitting coordinators look for when discussing speed of an athlete, 
So I dove right into that, and it was just a crash course of, you know, learning how to build a robust athlete, whether it was basketball, baseball, or football. Joint by joint, human anatomy is all the same. So, you know, every joint needs a certain amount of mobility, every joint needs a certain amount of stability, and how do you build that? So while being in that environment, I was able to own that part of program design, learn about baseball, because I did not play baseball growing up, so I had to learn about the sport, which made me very uncomfortable, but then also, you know, what does these young athletes need to have in order to be successful and go up through the rankings to eventually get to the major leagues and be successful? And, you know, that experience back then, that was 2006, now 2018, the athletes are just as young as those athletes were. And because I started there over 12 years ago, and that was the first thing I was exposed to, it makes it very, very simple as far as what are the professional habits that these basketball guys at 19 and 20 years old should establish early on that would eventually lead to a championship in New York in two or three years. And that's what the experience taught me a lot about. So you were able to take learnings yeah. from the baseball experience into basketball. And at the time, you don't, you know, looking back, you don't know that. Like you're just, you know, I remember, you know, just a lot of the stuff was mundane and it was, you know, um, the basics of preparing on the road, the weight room to go to, the bags, you know, the post-game meals, the timing of pre-game supplementation, the hydration levels, checking these different sweat rate levels, and it's, it's bare minimums. It's, you know, it's not like it's extravagant. You're staying in a small hotel. You have a one little small travel bag. Um, but you're gone. You're playing games every day. It's the entire summer. It's 162 games, and it's because it's every day. It can be it's so much repetition. I mean, you're doing that every day. And um, as mundane as it felt back then when I was younger because I wanted action every day, because um, I was working for you know, a, a coordinator who was you know, a lot more experienced than me at the time. And um, I didn't understand that process until now. I'm like, oh, sh oh shoot, you know what? If it wasn't for those, all those hours and hours and hours and hours of drilling these younger guys to be professional, to do things the right way, I would probably be a little more frustrated and, and not as patient with some of our younger players now because I know it just takes time. It's just repetition. You just can't to check every box before you, you know, you move on to another layer of performance and also just some professionalism. It's just owning these small wins first, getting guys to go to bed at a certain time, take your cherry juice on the flight, wear your tights on the flight, eat breakfast within an hour of waking up, have this supplement within 30 minutes of going on a practice court, have this on a game day. It's just little things that I learned back then that I'm applying now. It's just with more research, I just use better, better tools and better systems. It sounds like you learned by experience. You yeah. learned by osmosis, the process of 100%, doing it. Yeah, 100%. And you mentioned the military before as well. Oh, uh, yeah. So I, um, so after baseball, I started working for a company called Exos. And um, I've always been a, a sportsman, but I was like, you know what, if I, ever, if I ever got out of pro sports, you know, I would want to work for athletes performance. It was called that at the time. I was a big fan of Mark Verstegen. Um, I used to read all his stuff, him and Mark Verstegen and Mike Boyle. I used to read a lot of books, and I used to go on YouTube and listen to some of the stuff they were, were saying about performance, and I just loved it. And I got lucky because a friend of mine uh, was director of education in 2010, and they had a position um, in the military. And I didn't know where I was going to be sent off. I didn't know where the contract was, but I wanted to be a part of that family as far as just being a part of Exos. Because at the time, they were working with soccer players, major league baseball players, and they had like their own innovation center, which I knew that I could learn a ton of stuff from because I spent five years in baseball. And when you get so inundated with baseball or one sport, you kind of 
you don't have much time to get out and go into um, different conferences or even visit other teams because you're busy all summer. In the wintertime, there's not as much stuff going on in the wintertime as it is in, in the spring and summer. So I was thirsting at that time for just another level of just learning performance and, and, be, and being able to adapt a philosophy into any other area if I wanted to go back into sports. So I, I reached out to them and they sent me uh, to a special forces branch out in Northern Virginia. And at that time, um, the government was pulling a, a ton of money for like human performance optimization programs across the Department of Defense. Luckily, I was able to start up one of the contracts in DC and I left Phoenix. I spent two months in Phoenix learning all the philosophies of Exos, uh, spent time with the coaches, coached athletes, learned all the nuances of their system as nine pillar principles, and then took all that information and applied it in an area that was um, never exposed to any type of performance training and given all the resources to build out what I need to build out. So now I was more like, okay, I went from strength coach, now I'm a coordinator, and now I'm a manager because I have to um, corral a, a bunch of different people to believe into the system, organize the, uh, the, the soldiers and also civilians, the groups, based off of their availability, and then you know show tangible results so that our commander believes in the program, we can keep it for years and years and years. So um, they gave me everything you could think of, like uh, Omega Wave, um, you know, we had gym awares, Tinder units, um, other resources you could think of that we use now currently and um, that experience just taught me a lot about organizing a system into an environment that's pretty chaotic that's not used to um, being able to measure performance day to day and then taking your philosophy stamping it down keeping it there and then as other things are being built up and new tools are coming out not changing your systems or philosophy just seeing if those methods fit into what you currently built so aside from getting up at 4 a.m., because in the military, you have to get up super early because they start their day by 6. So I had to start my day at 4 a.m. to get the first couple of groups through. From 6 to 12, six to 9, I had a little bit of a break. From 10 to 1, another three groups. And then from 1 to 4, I would finish my day. So it was like nine groups a day. Every day from 4 a.m., I would leave at 5 p.m., and all throughout this time, it was just me, one performance specialist at the time, and you're designing programs, you're creating mentorships within the, within the DOD, you're traveling across different brigades, you're meeting with you know, different um, operatives and Navy SEALs or other, other, um, other branches, you're just learning all this information. And that experience just taught me how to make, um, okay, you have your, your philosophies, this is what an NBA athlete should look like. This is what they should be able to do. This is how many games we have. These are the important biometrics that we need to keep track of to make sure that we get to our end goal, which is winning, and keeping our injury rates down and also improving the performance. Okay, now we have our philosophy set. These are the different metrics we want to measure. No matter what happens in this environment, this is always going to stay the same. Now, if there's a better system that can measure heart rate variability, cool. If it fits into our morning practices and how we measure it, great. If not, we won't even entertain it. If this is a, a, a platform that measures, um, you know, the different types of volume that we use in the weight room and it can tell us a story about how our athletes started here and can get us to this. If it fits in our specific weight room and it, it flows within the chart and the players, you know, it's not cumbersome for the players to look into it, great. But if, it, if not, then we won't use it. So it's just, you know, that experience taught me tons of discipline, 
autonomy, you know, being able to fight through adversity because a lot of these times these guys will be gone for months and months at a time because they're going down range and it's life or death. So, you know, are you able to give them tangible solutions to, to deal with whatever they're facing out there in the range? And um, that's what that experience taught me is that, you know, you always have to create a philosophy, build something that's sustainable, and whatever you're measuring, keep those very, very consistent. And whatever else changes around it, it won't affect it because you already have a sound philosophy that's, that's sustainable throughout the chaotic lifestyle of working in pro sports. And it's a people business, isn't it? And it's a people business, relationship driven. You're learning about different yes. people all the time. You yep. just can't understate that, can you? No, and military folks, you know, um, that's they're they're very smart. I mean, they're super smart. I mean, they're fighting for our freedom, and you know, um, they're very very sharp. You know, they they have a thirst for 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 what information can help them, and um, it's all survival. So you know, you you have to be sharp enough and be able to understand the information enough to disseminate it in a way that. One speaks to them at a very high level because these senior leaders are thirty years in the military, special operations. They probably have more life experiences than you do. But if you're able to be very, very confident and credible with what you build for them, and it shows results in a positive way, then they they'll buy into it. But that starts with getting to know who the person is and meeting them where they are, whether they're twenty five or thirty five. You have to meet them where they are, and it's the same within pro sports. And you have to have a very open mind. Very open mind. And when you arrived at the Knicks, were there things that you hadn't considered before? My, t my tailgate into uh, the team, when I was working in the military, um, through my professional experiences, at professional um, places I've worked, I've connected with several people. And one of those individuals uh, at the time was working with the Knicks. We met in baseball. So um, we, met, we, we worked together for two years in baseball. We became great friends because of our love for basketball. But at the time, we were working in baseball, and coincidentally, he was a soldier. Not knowing I would be working in the military later on, but he was a soldier. He was older than me. He spent, I think, 12 or 11 years in the military, got out, and wanted to you know, have a career in SSC. So in baseball, he started at the lowest level, but he had a vision of where he wanted his life to be, so he decided to start you know, in rookie ball and work his way up and eventually get into the NBA. And we shared that same vision. Since I was 19 years old, um, this, is the this is the position I wanted. So even though I took a different course of action, this is ultimately where I wanted to go. And I wrote that down back when I graduated high school. It was NBA with, believe it or not, this team in this role. And then eventually hopefully we can win a championship or even get close. And that would just, you know, be a dream come true for me. But my course of action was different because I wanted to stretch myself a little bit differently so I can get more experiences coming into this role because I'm, I'm much more prepared now than I would have been probably if I just started from college basketball and worked my way through. So one of the guys I met at the time took a job um, with Orlando, and I was still in baseball. The Magic is in um, Florida, and I used to I used to live in Tampa for a couple of off seasons, and I used to help him in Orlando with the Magic do heart rate testing, just be around, just help out, look at the equipment, kind of look at the environment to see okay how could I fit in this environment in the future. This is two thousand and eight. I didn't get hired as an until twenty thirteen. But I knew that that experience would help me, and he's a good person to connect with anyway because we were friends, and he's currently working in the NBA, so he knows what my goal is eventually. So I thought maybe one day I'll be working with him. So he spent two years in Orlando. I was helping him out with heart rate data testing, and he, he ended up taking a job with the Knicks. So now I get out of baseball. I move to D.C. He's in New York. And like I explained to you earlier, 
in the military at the time, they spent tons of money on software, how to measure saliva, you know, sweat rate and heart rate. And in the NBA back in 2013, they weren't really doing all of that yet. So I had an advantage with, and that, that part of my um, professional experience because I had the software now because I've spent time building it with the military and it was just me. So I just had time to play with all these different tools, but I would help him use some of the information to maybe help his program out here in New York. And that's how the relationship started. I would come help. I helped out, you know, with just text messages. Hey man, you should probably do this. Look at this. Can you afford to buy this? Little things. And then he invited me to training camp in 2012. So that's when I met um, all the staff, some of the players. And then the following year, I interviewed for a position because he was there as his assistant. And by the time I got there, believe it or not, the coach had hired another assistant coach, so that assistant role was, was no longer available. So I currently knew the front office. I knew the, the weight room logistics. I knew who was around. I knew what they were lacking. So I kind of had a head start as, okay, if I ever was put in this role, um, it still would be tough because you're still only, at the time, you know, 29, and you're learning how to deal with pro athletes. And at that time, the Knicks had um, an older team. I mean, they had guys that had seven-plus years of experience, Olympians, All-Stars, MVPs. I mean, they were stacked. So even if I did come in with all this experience with software, it doesn't matter. You still got to deal with that player you're looking at who has 10 years of experience, four Olympians, and you got to give him the buy into what you're trying to tell him he should use when he's already had success at that level without even using this stuff. So either way, it was going to be a challenge. But um, having the experience of seeing what was there already, it helped me the transition a little bit better. So it's coming in 2013 as, an, as a um, strength conditioning coordinator. I was an assistant to two other people. Um, it was tough, but the good thing for me was even though I had the software experience, I didn't have to come right into that. So I, I, my, my only focus was weight room, weight room culture, build the programs, build it out. What are the micros? What are the macros? What are we measuring? What is the testing? You know, what information can we use to bi-weekly report on? Don't worry about, you know, the wellness questionnaires, the RPE scores, the, the, the indoor and outdoor, what well, indoor GPS tracking systems. Don't worry about our, our athlete management system. Don't worry about that stuff. You just stay here. So for my first year and a half, my head was just down, just solely on the weight room. And I already had that from baseball. And I didn't have to come in with the software knowledge yet because that wasn't my role. So that allowed me to develop just as the head strength coach. And then over time, someone left, uh, someone was let go. And because I already had that experience with software and because of now I was great with people, management of relationships with the players, our medical staff, the, uh, the, the front office, just massaging that and just also just, you know, always having a beginner's mind. It was very, very easy for me to shift over and now bring in a sports science consultant, um, you know, upgrade certain systems, build out the weight from a certain way because then I had the authority. But it took me a year and a half to two years to kind of um, get that respect and also just own that and, you know, make sure my skills were ready to do that. And it, the first couple of years were just, it was a whirlwind for me because it was, just trying to understand that the, the, the workings of an NBA's mentality, you know, the veterans, what are some of the things that you need at this point in your career, you know, how can I tap into that? Because once you get the veterans to buy into you, the younger players fall right in line. So the first two years, it was, it was a learning curve, for sure. 
I'm still learning because we have different coaches. So you're always going to be learning in this sport, um, especially here when there's always a sense of urgency and things happen around you that you cannot control. So you always have to show up with a beginner's mind. But um, yeah, it was a huge learning curve my first first couple of years. Now, of course, you oversee yeah. performance at the Knicks. Yeah. And what are some of the challenges that come with that? What are some of the questions you're looking to ask on a daily basis of all the different stakeholders who might be involved in those conversations? Um, training age versus chronological age. So, you know, a lot of these players are drafted and they're expected to perform and be strong immediately. And, um, you know, just because the player is 20 years old, you know, he's elite, you know, top of his draft class, top three pick. His training age is zero. So he's never, ever, you know, had... The, the, he's never was trained in a way to allow the hormones, the hormones to be able to adapt, build his ligaments, his, his tendons and his muscle, the cells, the you know, hypertrophy. He wasn't built uh, up yet. So I have to always you know, figure out different ways to measure quantitatively our athlete's performance because it may not always be um, tissue mass. It may not be you know, weight gain for some of our smaller athletes. But that's when our biomechanics come into place. You know, it's is this person getting stronger? Is your nervous system, you know, a lot more efficient? Um, are they having more success now with some of the stuff that, that the coaches are asking them to do on the court because we've increased mobility and stability of certain joints? So it's the constant revisiting of our bi-weekly measurements on top of what the training age is to show the staff and the front office that our athletes, despite some of the... Um, the losses are continually, physically, and neuromuscularly getting better. It's just answering that question every day. Are they getting better, yes or no? And physically, qualitatively, you may not see it, but when we strip away the, the curtain, it's what's underneath that shows this player is getting better. That's the reason why he's been able to perform this way for this month because his leg, you know, recruit his, his lower leg force is improved his RPD, rate of production development, has increased by 3%, or his reactive strength index has improved over, you know, a tenth of a percent. And small micro gains, but we have to always show that and, and explain that and, and disseminate that. And that's something that, you know, I have to wake up thinking about because um, you can't always see it. It has to be explained and with numbers. They want to see numbers and data. And of course, what you're describing there is sort of individual development yeah. plans for the yeah. players. Yeah. You have your desired outcomes. There are mm -hmm. metrics that you follow. You sell that to your colleagues. You sell that to the coaches. But what about the players? How are they empowered to follow those plans? And what are some of the support services you have in place for them? I guess, you know, it's not just me, you know, uh, selling them it. You know, it's because we have um, a player development group. And it's like the key performance individuals in each area so it's about eight of us and you know we we have a extensive process of testing that looks at musculoskeletal pliability and range of motion some performance measurements that looks at power and strength and then we have our conditioning test and we have all these draft picks obviously that come through the, the, the testing battery and we know the elite athletes out of that out for the guards wings and bigs and we just when we go through this process of assessment, um, one with the younger players, we tell them that, okay, these are the, the top picks that we've seen come through here. This is where you currently sit. 
And these are the ways that we're going to get you to there by doing this. And it's not just me. The dietitian is involved. Our team head athletic trainer or physical therapist is involved. Our sports scientist has the information to, to send it to me so I can show you if you're getting better, yes or no. And then we have our, one of our top assistant coaches are involved and our player development coordinator is involved. And then we have a, 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 an individual who looks at just the outside influences, whether it's a spouse, um, where they're living, are they driving, little things. And um, we're all involved in developing the whole person. And we meet with these players and we talk about, okay, look, this is where you currently are. This is where we want to get you. And we're all supportive. You know, they, they have access to us at any day, um, whatever they need, you know, whether it's a ride, getting somewhere at a certain time, relationship problems, uh, you know, lack of confidence, sleep irritability, whatever it is, um, you know, deficiencies in vitamins, whatever we need to do to support them, they have access to. So we've done a really good job of curating a group of individuals to help support the mission based off of the testing that we collect. And I can always go back to any one of those individuals to see if we're getting better or not. So it's natural for your priorities to change during the course of the season. Yeah, yeah, because uh, unfortunately in sport things happen, and you know you have trades, um, you have injuries, and you know we have to make sure our players are able to step in at any minute to perform, and hopefully you know um, buy some time if it's a star player for us to you know continue with the success that we've had. So yeah, we you know we. You may start the season, you know, a, a player may need to, you know, improve um, their leg strength and they may not be playing as much. So we get a lot more volume, a lot more sessions, a lot more training time in. Uh, but if someone rolls their ankles because it happens 75% of the time in basketball, now that player has to play a game. So now is he, is he fit enough to sustain 30 to 40 minutes at night when we were just focusing on his leg strength? So it's just always looking at our priorities and just changing them and reorganizing what we need to focus on based off of if they're playing a lot of minutes, if, um, they're, un if they're not active, meaning they're not even in a uniform, and if they are playing a lot of minutes, you know, if they're not starting, what's the, the patterning of, of play that our coach needs to have them ready by? And it's just three different levels of, of performance you're constantly looking at, whereas a guy who plays 38 minutes every night, you're not probably going to do... Um, some of your more like explosive lifting, you're not going to do a lot of things that's going to zap his nervous system. It's a lot more recovery and GPP based. Whereas your younger players, you don't play as much or are inactive. I mean, they're doing four to, four to six sessions a week, ton of conditioning, a lot of film. So you just have to always know, okay, these are the priority players. These are the three players who aren't who are inactive, and these are your kind of like platoon guys who just play 15 to 20 minutes a night and. These are the times in the game where he's needed most, and he should be able to do this. So you're constantly reorganizing your priorities throughout the year. Now, remind our listeners that we're about 200 yards from the O2 Arena here in London. Yeah, uh, we we're we're a long way from Madison Square Garden, <laughs> and I had a quick look before I came to meet you, and it seems that the Knicks will travel in excess of 41,000 miles per season. It's an incredible number when you look at it that way, and that's every NBA season. So I understand you'll be on the road with them a lot of the time. You'll spend a lot of time with the players, the coaches, and support staff. So I wanted to ask you, how important is well-being amongst all of those stakeholders? You've already touched a little bit upon it already, but perhaps you could say a little bit more about how you take steps to ensure their well-being during the course of a grueling season when it's airport, hotel, arena, Airport, hotel, not necessarily in that order, yeah. of course. We, we try to, you know, we, we're very, very um, holistic, I would say, group of professionals on this team. 
um, you know, we first, we employ, um, you know, meditation in our, in our, in our practices and also just in our day-to-day, um, life and it's, it's group based and, you know, we, you know, we always try to start with just some breathing, basic breathing, you know, flush the lungs out, you know, get rid of the, the toxicity of, of just travel and the, the nuances of, of just a long grueling season by just resetting um, your brain and your mind to be able to perform and be ready for the day, pretty much just being present. So, you know, just from resetting the mind, just from a, a basic, basic standpoint, you know, we, we employ different strategies, you know, um, meditation is one, it's big, we do it every day as a group. Um, when we travel, uh, we, we try to, you know, suppress as much junk light as we can. We, we use glasses on the flights. Guys are nowadays on their phones or iPads. They don't even read books, you know? So we, we have glasses that we use that blocks out blue light so that when we land and we're going to LA or somewhere else, our circadian systems are still in place and regulated. So when we get, when it finally gets dark, the melatonin is released at the right time. So we do that, stuff like that. We have um, red light therapy where we try to, you know, increase collagen stimulation, vitamin D levels, we're an indoor sport. So we try to, you know, we know that vitamin D levels are very, very deficient in basketball players or indoor athletes, especially with African-Americans. So we try to, you know, have red light therapy to um, secrete vitamin D that helps with uh, irritability, fatigue, mood. Um, and with red light therapy, you know, we, we, we use that to help stimulate guys' you know, vitamin D levels because we know the majority of them are deficient. So that helps keep them well. Um, you know, we have compression tights. You know, we try to keep oxygen and blood flow to this muscle as much as we can over longer flights, especially with altitude differences, um, time travel. So we can keep the body oxygenated and the muscles recovering while on a longer flight or traveling across time zones. We get a more happier, better, more well athlete. Um, then we, you know, we use certain strategies like, uh, you know, beetroot extract, beetroot supplementation for, you know, vaso, vaso, uh, dilation for blood flow. Um, it also helps with, you know, immune system build up. Some players, um, we have extreme where we do, you know, um, time restricted eating based off a certain window of eating so that we don't irritate our gut going into a game. If we know that, for example, it's a five hour difference. We might not even have the guys eat certain meals until certain times of the day so that we can keep the circadian rhythm just regulatory because who wants to have an irritated gut or issues with digestion? You know, it's just little things that matters the most, you know, to us. And then at night we have um, diffusers everywhere in rooms, humidifiers, um, certain pillows. And, yeah, we just try to get as much sunlight as we can. So it's just that. And that process starts before the road trip. So when we get into the... Cities, they already have a handout of what hotel, what restaurants have the best sources of this. Why you should have this? Why should you have grass-fed steak? Four ounce of grass-fed steak versus twenty out twenty ounce New York steak strip. Just basic stuff of just what's going to happen if you eat that versus this coming across the time zone. Um, you know, sauna, steam rooms. We 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 like infrared saunas, um, but a lot of cities don't have that. But we have. Uh, mats or like blankets that have infrared technology in it that we use to stimulate, you know, um, collagen stimulation, you know, uh, recovery, detoxing, lymphatic system. So it's all these different things that we use outside of just basics that we try to employ and it's all explained before we leave.
every road trip so that they they at least have um, a sense of what to expect and also the resources around them and it's a group it's a group message that goes out and it's constant engagement and uh yeah we have a pretty pretty healthy team knock on wood as far as just wellness and immune system and they have everything we do blood paneling and some guys are high in antioxidants some are high in pro-oxidants okay so if we know that we go on a road trip what are some of the foods that we can that we can have them ingest to kind of equal out that stuff so stuff like that what about their mental well-being? Do you provide for that as well? We travel with a, um, a mental skills coach, so he's he's around. He works behind the scenes, um, and he you know he sends he does a bunch of different like motivational um, group sessions. He does individual sessions with the guys, and he's he's here. You know he's he's here all the time. We don't have like a, it's a couple of nootropic like gadgets that I've seen and researched about, but we don't currently have that. But um, we do look at. Uh, heart rate variability, and we do we try to look at that as much as we can, and we travel with him, and he's really good at, you know, whether a win or loss, just tapping into the psyche of our group as a whole, and he travels with us. There seems to be a sense across elite sport at the moment that well-being is one of the next big areas for performance gains. To what extent are you witnessing that in basketball? The same, I mean, because he's... Uh, the athletes are just so young, and they're they're expected to be on their A game every day in front of twenty thousand every day. Whereas you know most sports, or even most professions, if you're twenty years old, you're not surrounded by twenty thousand people who are paying to see you have a great game. Um, so just the pressures of one, you know, you are expected whether you have a good day or a bad day personally at seven o'clock or seven thirty o'clock, seven thirty p.m. Um, you're expected to be in your A game. It doesn't matter what happened before that. doesn't matter what happens after that. So whatever process you need to get into to kind of wrap your, your head around, okay, at 7.30 p.m., I have to be in my A game. And sometimes people are unforgiving because that might be their only time they get to see you play. At the end of the day, it's entertainment for, for fans. And um, you're expected to, to play well. And... It's, it can be, you know, very, very hard on you if you're not used to experiencing um, that type of pressure, and you may not be successful immediately. I mean, basketball player is only three hundred and you know, fifty, four hundred and fifty players in the in the whole world playing in the NBA. So you're the best of the best, and you're playing against the best of the best. So you have to score and defend the best at that position. And a lot of guys coming into the league, they may not have experienced that yet. It might be the first taste of, oh shoot, you know what? These guys are great. Like they're just as good as me, and you know I'm not having a great. I'm not having that great of a game, and it's adversity. And if there isn't a, a mental outlet to to be able to explain that and understand that individually, it can lead to some anxiety and stress. And I think um, because our athletes are so younger, that you know you'll see that you know anxiety and you know stress levels are a little bit higher because they're expected to perform at 21 and 22 years old and. The first taste of adversity, you know, it, 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 it teaches a lot about who you are. And they're not always exposed to that. So I think you see that more because of the athletes in NBA are just the youngest across all of sport. They're 19, they're 19, 20 years old, whereas most sports are football. You can't get drafted until three years in. Baseball, um, same. You're minor league, so by the time you get to the big league level, you're 25, 26. And even in football, soccer here, I mean, there's academies. 
So you're still just you're 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 nature you're you're nurtured into what you can expect. Here it yeah. is just once you get drafted, I mean you're expected to perform. And then outside of that, um just and there's other pressures that you're surrounded by. You know, you have people who you can latch on to you and you know, you have old friends who you you know, you may need to cut off and their relationships become toxic and you know, that's a whole in the personal way that can add stress too. So I just think you see younger athletes deal with a lot more stress both in externally and internally, aside from just playing the game. And they're younger and they're not used to that. So you see it a lot more because the athlete across all of the sports are the youngest here in the NBA. But you're showing them that it's okay to not be okay if that makes sense. Yeah. You're showing them that hey look man, you know, we're everyone starts this way. You know, Kobe Bryant, um, which is one of my favorite players to ever play the game, his first season he airballed in the finals. And, you know, he was interviewed and they asked him what he if he could go back to that game, it was against Utah, and Shaq was obviously the dominant player on that team, would you have taken that shot? He still would have taken that shot because it taught him he needed to get his butt in the gym. You know, his legs weren't strong enough yet. Um, and just the pace of the game, he wasn't there yet. But he had to take that shot because he wanted to know if he could make that shot and if he had the confidence to take that shot, and he did. Physically, he just wasn't there yet. So all that summer, he just trained to be able to make that shot because he would always take that shot and that's Kobe Bryant who's one of the best to ever live on this earth playing basketball who has his two numbers retired in LA and um he hit it everyone hits it and it's just how you respond from that so I think you know the second year is always better than the first the third is always better than the first because um you just learn over time how to deal with stress and um it's okay to, to struggle through it because everyone's here to support you it's the journey, isn't it? And it's, it's, all, it's all an aggregate of experiences. All of it is. Even in my role, it's the same. I mean, it's, it's no different. You know, it's, you know, you work in sport and uh, you don't know what's going to happen. It could be, I could be, you know, I could, you, could, you could be here today and gone tomorrow. It's just, you just know it. But if you know, if you know that every day you're waking up and when you have a great day, meaning if you're, fi if you're firing on all cylinders, whatever that process means for anyone. Like for me, I know I have to get up an hour earlier because I have a certain way I pray. I read, I take a cold shower, I do some type of movement, I do a podcast. It's an hour. I have to do that because that sets the rest of my day up. It's just the way I've been. Um, and I work out midday because I fast up until uh, 3 p.m. So all I have is coffee and I'm coffee now. Um, so technically not a fast, but it's my fast. I like it. I just don't have any, I don't have any solid food until 3 p.m. Right. And if I have a great day, go to bed at 11 o'clock because the game's over around 10 and I wear certain pajamas, like whatever. You know, whatever my perfect day looks like, as many as I can do of those, I feel great whether we win or lose because I know I check the boxes off. In between the work, that stuff has to happen so I can get exactly what I need to this team efficiently, effectively, and do it at the best level that I have. Once you have those days, you just put them down, you just, you just put them together every day, every day. So if these younger players understand, okay, I ate this this day. For shoot around, I did this this day. During shoot around, I noticed that my mind kind of drifted here, but I, I focused back in on this. After shoot around, I ate this. I took a nap for this long. Before the game, I ate this. I listened to this to get ready for the game. I played like this in the game. I got done with the game. I did a cold bath. I ate something. I went home. I went to bed by 12 or 1. Woke back up. I felt great. If they just understand that, that process, the journey, it becomes enjoyable. It's just when you don't have a, a structure or a system of how you get the most out of yourself, that's when you become stressed out. And I think that's the, the silver lining in the journey is what is it that, that will get 1% out of you as an individual so that you can take those days, take that structure, 
break it down and just continually to replicate that day, day in and day out. And that's what I've learned over the years. It's just replicating your best days and paying attention to what you did to have those best days, whether you won or lost. You can go to bed at night, look in the mirror and say, you know what? I gave everything I gave. And the quicker they understand that, the quicker the journey becomes enjoyable and you just don't focus so much on it. the ones and losses because they'll eventually take care of themselves if you're surrounded by individuals who also are buying into that same process. Because I get this all the time. Like, I want what you have or I want... I want to. I want to run a team. I want to, whatever. And I'm like, listen. You you have to figure out. You know what is it that will allow you to maximize your purpose? Find that first, and then okay. Within that, what are the things you love to do? What are what are some of the things you hate to do, but you know will be beneficial to you? Take a couple of things out of those areas and make up a perfect day for you. And the best way that you can with a family, with whatever your relationship, whatever you have, whatever else you have going on around that passion. Try to organize it in a way that gives you the best day. And the more that you can involve yourself in that process, and it'll be tough at first, um, you'll find that you can deal with adversity and the hard stuff because you enjoy everything that comes with it because you're taking care of stuff you need to for yourself that's involved in that purpose that's giving you the best chance to be successful. We just don't, we don't, we don't dig deep enough to figure out what it is. Like, I didn't know a cold shower would help me throughout the day. It's like, what? And I've, I've been reading this stuff, and I've been reading about, you know, mitochondria, inflammation, and then, like, a cold shower sucks. But if you can do that for three minutes in the morning, nothing else is worse than that the rest of the day, physically, right? So it took me a while to wrap my head around it. I'm like, okay. So I tried it, and I, I love it. And stuff that happened now, it just, you know, it doesn't affect me because I know that in the morning I'm, I'm taking care of for myself what I need to take care of, and I'm getting everything I need to get into one day, and... um I feel good about the process because I know that I'm giving all that I have to this organization because I'm doing all the things the right way and um, I'm maximizing all of that first and then everything else is just extra. We don't we don't figure that out yet. It takes us a couple of years to figure that out. And athletes is worse because you have all these people around you who are trying to sell you things or they have the latest and greatest thing for you to do and they may not be the right thing for you. You know, um, I don't meditate as much as I should as outside of the team and it's not because I don't believe in it. I'd rather pray and do devotions for me. That's just my preference. That doesn't mean I don't. Absolutely. I'm not present. I just choose to take that ten minutes to put it somewhere else. You know, it's just finding that. I just think once we find our own journey and purpose, and not follow what everyone else says that you should be doing, the journey is a lot more enjoyable, and you can rest your head on that. And finally, what is next in your space? What's on the horizon? What excites you? Um, I think. Uh, um, well, I think that. Uh, the way that you can measure like speeds and uh, tracking devices and just the the ability to measure you know from a triangular perspective human movement and stuff and videos and video cameras I think in the world of um, performance you know monitoring all these companies are coming up with different ways different accelerometers different camera systems and different ways to you know measure performance while they're actually in the sport playing the game. Um, I think that's exciting because, um, like for example, the NBA, um, the same camera system that's employed this year, there's a company that um, they have the same indoor tracking devices for teams to use. So now you can compare you know, how fast John is running in the game compared to how fast he's running in practice. Before, you really couldn't compare that because the NBA had a totally different camera system. So you were relying on their algorithms versus our algorithms. And it wasn't really giving us a big picture of, you know, is this person 
doing something around the basket or away from the basket compared to practice and in the games. We didn't really have an answer for that. But now because companies are being more sophisticated and they're paying attention to, okay, what what are the NBA or these pro sport teams using that we can actually build? It may cost a little bit more money, but how can we replicate that so that teams are able to measure in-game use and practice use at the same rate and be able to articulate and disseminate it to the higher-ups? That's exciting me because, you know, it just saves me more time. You know, it saves... It saved me more time as far as, you know, if someone's asking a question about game percentages or game use or game speeds or fatigue in games, and then we have our practice systems and we can look at real-life heart rate feeds on top of the other metrics that we have, and it's clean and it's indoor from a triangular perspective, so X, Y, and Z, that's a game-changer for me. And being able to be involved in that process, I think, is, um, is, is fascinating. Um, for me, and then you know the other thing is you know um, probably uh, just the athletes are getting younger, and um, within that you have to just be able to educate them more. And I just like working with you know younger elite athletes um, and seeing that process develop over time um, because it forces you to become more of a teacher, and um, it just it, it keeps you sharp. And um, the more you can teach, you know, athletes how to go from point A to point B, C to D, and further and further, it just forces you to command the information. And um, you just feel a lot more confident in what you can do because you're dealing with younger athletes. So between the the camera systems, the the monitoring, the videos, and being able to, to compare real game action versus practice action simultaneously, and also just the development of a younger athlete because they're younger now and they're international. Um, that, that excites me. That excites me. Well, thank you very much for thank your time you. and good luck this thank evening. Thank you. I appreciate it.